there is over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. All right. Hi, and welcome back to Net Zero Carbon, the show here at Freight Waves, where we deep dive into decarbonization with a specific focus on freight, fuels, and energy. We get to explore the technologies promising a cooler tomorrow and the people that are bringing these solutions to life today. Today, I've got the distinct pleasure to be joined by Jake Russell, fellow with the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, ARPA-E, as some of you might know it. Jake, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Really excited to have you on and double click into an article that was a great one you published on Freight Waves recently on the concept of disaggregation and decarbonization. But before we dive in, how about just giving the listeners a quick background? Who are you? What does ARPA-E do? Why are you focused on this specific niche of supply chain? All the things. Sure. So ARPA-E, uh, as you said, is a, is a f- agency within the U.S. Department of Energy that focuses on high-risk, high-reward energy tech. R&D. We are the moonshot agency for the Department of Energy. Um, and as a fellow there, my role is to try to identify those white spaces in energy tech uh, that could potentially have enormous impact, but it may not be kind of looked at quite yet by industry or, or private investment. Um, so before I came to RP, I was actually a chemist. Uh, I got my PhD in chemistry just uh, last year. Um, but at RP, I've been really diving into transportation. Um, so, you know, I've been looking at uh, maritime decarbonization, rail decarbonization. And I think this idea of disaggregation uh, is really a, a kind of new topic that could potentially have big impact for all of those industries uh, and freight transportation in general. So, you know, it's 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 something that's pretty outside of my background area, uh, not much to do with chemistry. Um, but I think maybe that outsider perspective helps uh, me see it with new eyes. Man, that is the coolest background into freight transportation decarbonization <laughs> I've ever heard. I am somewhat jealous and I, I agree with you. I think having sometimes you've got to come in from outside the system in order to see what can be changed, what can be tweaked, what learnings worked elsewhere that can be applied here. Um, I am interested in the journey. Like, did you know someone at RPE? Like, how did you end up actually in the role you're in? So the RPE fellows position is one of the coolest things you can possibly do with a PhD. Uh, they, all, all the fellows are four of us right now, and we're currently hiring. Um, you know, we all have PhDs and you're pretty much brought in for two years to look at all the cool stuff that's happening in energy. You can literally look at anything you want. You're encouraged to do things outside of your area. I knew even you know at the beginning of grad school, this position, something like this, was something I wanted to do. I was really interested in learning about all different aspects of energy, um, and the focus on kind of moonshot technologies was just too cool to pass up. Um, so you know, I kind of throughout grad school knew that that I wanted to do this, and you know, towards the end, I you know reached out to some people here, applied. Um, and got in, you know, my, my pitch, uh, for the interview process was actually on wind power for ships, which I think is another really cool topic area. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a two year position and just enough time to kind of deep dive into one or two areas. Um, and then we'll see what happens next. Man, that is so cool. And remind me, there are other areas within ARPA, right? It's not just energy. There are similar. There are uh, other. 
There are other agencies uh, in the government that use the ARPA model, originally piloted by DARPA, right? The Department of Defense, uh, which famously invented the internet and stealth bombers. Um, we haven't done quite that yet, but we've also only been around for about 12 years. There's also, you know, um, ARPA-I in the Department of Transportation, which is ARPA Infrastructure. Um, there's I-ARPA, which is Intelligence ARPA. And there's also been talk of ARPA-H recently, which is health, which will tackle big problems in the health sector, medicine. I've got enough acronyms to keep in touch with already. <laughs> it's something I had to learn by starting in the government is there's a lot of acronyms being thrown around and you have to keep up. It's very similar in the ESG space too. I feel like I'm just constantly bombarded by a new acronym every day and butchering the ones that I thought I knew. <laughs> well, let's let's push those aside and let's talk about disaggregation as a concept and maybe kind of break apart the article and go a little bit deeper into what your current areas of focus are. So tell us a little bit about just getting this article over to FreightWaves and thank you also for publishing it with our readers. Hopefully it's had some good feedback, but why'd you write it? Yeah, so like I said, this this topic is something that I haven't seen mentioned much as a kind of distinct thesis, um, but I came to the topic um, after talking to several people who kind of were using the idea without calling it disaggregation, right? So I, I, I talked to several entrepreneurs and, and people in the industry um, who were kind of thinking about this idea of smaller freight kind of vehicles, smaller freight vessels as a way to increase the efficiency and flexibility of the entire system. Um, and after hearing several people mention this independently, I was like, hey, maybe there's something here which is happening, kind of a, a, a sea change, if you will, but um, that, that nobody's really put a name on yet. So it was really um, thanks to, to several of those people. And I want to give a shout out to Charlie Nordstrom, uh, who was one of the first people who um, you know pointed this idea out to me as well in the maritime industry. Um, so the idea is, um, you know, we know that to move freight is extremely energy intensive and to move freight in the US takes about 10% of our total national energy every year. Um, and yet most of that freight movement is still done on, on trucks, which are you know less efficient ways of moving things than on uh, rail and water. Uh, moving things on rail and water is about four to five times more efficient per ton mile than moving things on truck, right? So the idea, is modal shift. How can we move things less on truck and more on these more efficient modes to save overall energy uh, consumption? Um, and how do we do that? How do we move things? How do we convince people to move things on rail and water instead of on truck? Um, and I think the answer here is disaggregation, which is allowing these other modes to be more uh, flexible and fast and allow them to get into more of the places that trucks can reach to kind of re um, kind of mimic the, the, the flexibility of the trucking system. Um, right now, rail and ships are going the opposite direction, right? Over the past 50 years, we've seen them increase in scale, you know, by orders of magnitude, um, which means that they're actually becoming more limited in the places that they can reach, right? You know, ports have only a limited depth and rail yards are only so long and sightings. Um, but, but you know, this is actually decreasing the flexibility uh, that these modes can provide. Um, 
furthermore, you know, waiting for them to become consolidated, like uh, the, the, the freight, uh, the containers adding up into, you know, the entirely long trains or 20,000 container ships takes time and decreases the uh, kind of regularity with which you can ship these things out. So moving to smaller vessels, right? So, you know, think, you know, dozens of containers on a ship or single containers on a rail car, for example, allows you to use more of the infrastructure that we have, as well as move those things more regularly and with more flexibility. Really, really interesting and almost difficult to wrap your head around because anyone who's been in supply chain for a long time historically thinks of transportation as the trade-off between cost and speed, right? And we're, we're rarely equating energy efficiency as a piece of that. It's all about balancing inventory costs, storage costs, cost of capital, cost of moving the goods, cost of production, and that's our total landed cost to the customer. When you start unpacking that a little bit and looking at not just my supply chain, but as a macro, how do we as a as a country, as an ecosystem start to think about the best way to do something? It becomes a little bit clearer that disaggregation could have disproportionate impacts to both resiliency, cost, and speed even if we start to think about where you're making those investments. So maybe maybe it's important for listeners to to start there and start with maybe a, just a concrete example in maritime or rail, like what, what's the technology out there that fits this approach that you're kind of espousing? Yeah, so there, there's several companies doing this uh, in both rail and in water, you know, trying to embody this um, idea of disaggregation, moving to smaller vessels to increase flexibility and speed. Um, but, but one I think I'd like to highlight is uh, Parallel Systems, um, which is a rail company uh, based out of LA. Um, and they're creating, building, uh, autonomous rail cars. Uh, they can move independently. They're battery powered, uh, and they don't have anyone on board. Um, but they can move individual containers uh, by themselves, or they can kind of convoy together into longer chains for kind of long distance travel. Um, and so, one of the first kind of use cases of this could be in moving containers from a port, right? So away from you know where it's being offloaded to the ship, and get it to a uh, warehouse more quickly, right? Instead of having to have a line of trucks, drayage trucks waiting to pick up these containers and idling, you could have a rail line come straight onto your dock uh, with these individually moving cars. And instead of, you know, like a normal train having to wait for the whole train to assemble before you can take them off the dock, you have them go one by one, um, picking up the cars and you know, depositing them, you know, maybe 50 miles away at an inland warehouse or, or intermodal center. Um, so this is just kind of one example of how, you know, this this new type of vessel or vehicle, right, we haven't seen this before, can enable a new way of thinking about moving freight, right, in this case, moving it away from a dock. Um, and I know in the future, you know, we could potentially see this used for, for other use cases as well, right? Maybe getting closer to the last mile, for example, using some of those, you know, um, spur lines that are very, very underutilized, uh, but that penetrate almost every corner of the U.S. That's really interesting to think about because it becomes a consideration of, are we even monitoring how we're utilizing some of, some of this network? How underutilized are some of these spur lines or how, 
we know how inefficient it is to see trucks queuing up for miles outside of a port. And it's it's readily available that every customer that's waited on anything during this disruption has been impacted, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? But it, it is interesting to think about there are ways that we can optimize for resiliency and efficiency. It's not a wholesale change because we still need, you know, if you're going long distances, you still want as much on board as possible to try and keep the cost low. But I think your whole point is, when we do that, we don't have the opportunity to be flexible or make changes or react quickly to disruptions. So I love that example. Why now? And what does it take to bring some of those solutions to market? So that's that's a great question. That's, you know, whenever there's a, a new paradigm being proposed, that's always the question you have to ask. Why now? Why has this not been done before? Um, but I think this really comes down to the convergence of three technologies, uh, which have just started to become realized in the past five years or so. Um, and I think one of the most important of those is autonomy, right? So vehicle autonomy, um, you know, we are seeing that mentioned a lot when it comes to passenger vehicles and, and trucks, uh, and, you know, maybe urban air mobility planes and stuff. But I think one of the, you know, lesser discussed areas that this can have a big effect is in freight movement in these kind of, um, you know, uh, situations where vehicles are literally moving on rails, right? Seems like one of the obvious first use cases for uh, autonomous technology, where you can move things without any human operator. Um, and this is important for disaggregation because it allows you to do away with those economies of scale when it comes to kind of human uh, labor efficiency um, that historically, you know, has caused people to start aggregating, to start trying to make bigger and bigger and bigger ships and trains because they can be moved with fewer people, right? So so fewer people can move more goods when you have bigger ships. But if you can move your goods without, you know, having to worry about those efficiencies, then it becomes actually possible to, you know, move them on a smaller scale uh, and, and gain those increased flexibility benefits. Um, another technology development I think that's really important is the electrification of everything. Uh, we've seen that in many different sectors, uh, especially transportation. Um, but this really, again, provides an opportunity to move to smaller vessels instead of bigger vessels. Um, and one of the reasons is, again, because previously we relied on those economies of scale with internal combustion engines. With internal combustion engines, the bigger the engine, the more efficient it is. And so the less fuel you're burning per, per container. Um, with electric motors, that is less the case. And they're actually more scalable linearly. Um, so you can actually have smaller vehicles uh, with electric motors, which are just as efficient as the same motors on, on big vehicles. Um, smaller vehicles are also just easier to electrify in the first place. You can use batteries um, instead of having to rely on you know, a very limited supply of liquid fuels, um, which you would have to use for the larger vessels like ships and, and trains. So you can actually, if you move smaller, you can electrify more quickly, um, which helps us decarbonize. The, the third um, kind of technology enabling this transition is the, the modeling of our intermodal system that we're starting to see, right? Before we, we started to see, or we have been seeing uh, kind of silos between the different modes um, and, and kind of everybody working independently but we're really starting to see recently collaboration across modes, within modes. And I think when you have a much more complex system, 
which I'm suggesting, right? Lots of small vehicles moving all over the place in a kind of interconnected grid network. Um, you really need the kind of computational power and models um, that we've just started to kind of see come up very recently. So all three of these technologies converging means this is the time to start thinking about disaggregation. That is so exciting. And also contains lots of unintended benefits beyond just decarbonization too. It makes me immediately jump to, you know, warehouse robot automation, which is great for efficiencies, but it also has the added benefit of like, there should be fewer injuries or accidents going on at warehouses when you have robots doing some of the work. And the same should be true of long haul freight. It does make me think of another question though. When we're talking about these, the confluence of these different factors and technologies, it seems like the orchestration and coordination of that should play a big role in that sort of future uh, environment. Do you imagine that companies will emerge that, and I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking about here. So like if I'm going on Google Maps or Lyft now and I'm trying to go A to B, I'm getting lots of different routes and options. So Lyft's no longer just giving me ride share. I was in New York City at Climate Week last week and they're giving me the subway route or they're giving me where I can walk, all the different modes that I could walk to. And that takes some intense coordination, right? To see the schedules and understand. Do you imagine there would be some solution that would emerge that could organize and orchestrate this sort of network? And what would that look like? I, I think it's going to have to. You know, it's it's gonna require something I think the industry has been reluctant to do in the past, and that's data sharing, right? So, you know, sharing what's available, uh, you know, what what they can provide at certain times to more than just their own internal services and their own customers, right? They're going to have to actually collaborate across those company lines and, and across industry lines and mode lines um, to enable the system to be as efficient as it can be, right? But but ultimately, this is going to be beneficial for the cargo owner, right? I mean, the cargo owner wants to see this because it allows them to move their goods in the most efficient way, not just the most cheap way, but the most energy efficient way and the most decarbonized way as well, right? We might start seeing options when you're, you know, say you're looking on your lift equivalent for freight moving, right? You might start seeing options. Oh, if you take this route, it might cost a little bit more, but it's going to be completely green, zero carbon emitted to get your goods from A to B. And that's going to require, you know, maybe moving on rail for this section, moving on ship for this section, and then using truck for the last bit, as opposed to moving it by truck the whole way, right? And ideally, those are, you know, similar or even lower in cost. Um, but but I think we'll start to see those options become available for people and companies uh, who really value that decarbonized mode. I think that's spot on and probably a big miss for Uber Freight right there to not get that mention on that, <laughs> on that opportunity. We'll have to ping them and see if they want to come on the show in the future. So let me take a stab at this. If I think about um, how that could potentially look in the future, because I totally agree with you. I think I would add another emerging standard to that enabling technology, and that is just the agreement and alignment among counterparties of how we're going to account for carbon and allocate carbon in our supply chains when we think about who's responsible for decarbonizing it. So the emergence of a, a 4PL, 5PL even type solution that says A to B with this parcel, here's your 20 different routes, here's green, here's fast, here's a mix of the two. Um, that is a key, key piece that we do not have that end-to-end -end visibility. And I would argue that we're starting to see that 
verticality start to emerge when you look at companies like Maersk, you know, really going inland and taking a push on that last mile. I think you could see some form of competition globally among freight forwarders who can get you door to door and provide different modes and give you an accurate carbon measurement while providing you with visibility and transparency to the product in route uh, within the next few years. I don't know if you would take that vision and maybe add to it what you'd like to see or what you think is possible. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hate to uh, suggest added complexity to the to the supply <laughs> chain because it's, uh, as, as an outsider, like I said, it has been a, um, kind of being thrown into the fire to learn about all the complexities in this, you know, 1PL, 2PL, 3PL. Um, but, you know, maybe it's something that even current 3PL providers can start to offer to their customers, right? Um, or we could start to see it from the actual, you know, shippers themselves, like Maersk, um, as a kind of offering that they could give. Um, but, you know, I think even, you know, before we see these options, we're, we're also going to start to have to see um, actual decarbonized freight options available. Right before we can start offering them via, you know, uh, your Uber Freight or, or what have you, you have to actually have them available and deployed. Right, and we're only barely starting to see that um, on the water, on rail, uh, maybe a little bit further advanced on on road. Um, but that's where we really have to push right now. Exactly. Yeah, we need to see these typically unsexy modes. <laughs> <laughs> offer green, green, sexy, efficient options that are truly decarbonizing solutions. And it is probably fair to say, right, progress like this that we see often happens behind the scenes and is not either front of mind for consumers or even B2B solutions. You think about shale gas, you think about until the iPhone, really. I mean, this revolutionized everything. Man, this was sexy, but all the pieces that go into this are decidedly not, right, when they're actually happening and coming together. So I, it feels like we're getting more and more solutions to your point. What would be in your tenure, remaining tenure as a fellow, what would be a win for you? And are there any other quick hit names, companies that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, so I, I only have about six months left at RB. And that's one of the one of the challenges of working here is you only get a short amount of time to kind of accomplish what you want to. Um, but there are other companies who are kind of embodying this mode. You know, I mentioned Parallel. Um, Intramotive is another kind of rail company that's that's developing this specifically for um, moving uh, things from the mine head, so rail away from mines. Um, but I think what's also really exciting is we're seeing this on on water as well. Uh, there's there's one company, Fleet Zero, which is developing smaller ships, which are um, using uh, a battery swapping technology to enable them to do short sea shipping uh, within the U.S. There's also a cargo kite, uh, which is developing small seagoing vessels which are driven entirely by wind power right so that kind of combines two of my uh dear interests um but you know it's just amazing to see the kind of innovation happening um in the the startup world around this idea of, of disaggregation and, and what smaller uh, vehicles can enable so exciting and kind of ties in with your you said you wrote that as your entry uh, application to tie exactly. it'd be cool to see that kind of win come out of it before your tenure is over so i I am so grateful that you came on and we could go on for hours and hours about this. I geek out on this stuff. So we'll have to do a second episode, maybe right before your tenure's over and see what's what's new and exciting in six months. Hopefully we've got more and more options that are coming to market. 
I am grateful for your expertise and for your focus. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this platform gives us the opportunity to invite others into the conversation and, and just dream about an opportunity to change the model because it's clear that we need it. And it's clear that inefficiencies still exist that we need to work around. So thank you for pushing the ball down the field and for giving me a few minutes here today. Appreciate you. And thanks for giving me the opportunity, Tyler. I appreciate you as well. Anytime. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. There is over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions.